What's the state of the industry in fantasy sports content? And what about the state of the people in fantasy sports content? I'll talk to Justin Mason about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August 13th. Friday the 13th, good grief. It's show number 39 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Justin Mason. From Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the TGFBI podcast, and elsewhere. Discussing the state of fantasy sports content creation, how he picks pitchers to recommend for starts, about established stars returning from injuries, bullpens in Minnesota and St. Louis, his slumps, dumps, pumps, and jumps, and more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols will be doing double duty with the coverage of the National League, including Mookie Betts changing roster status, Fernando Tatis changing positions, Atlanta changing its rotation, and more National League news. And Nick will also report on the American League, covering stories like big changes in Detroit. But the same old stuff for Carlos Rodon and Edward Olivares. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst looks at Kansas City catcher MJ Melendez, and in extra innings, I'll be talking about the great gift of Miguel Cabrera. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Justin Mason is in the house. We are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the TGFBI podcast, and all kinds of other places. Justin, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Well, thank you for having me, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be back. I've tried to start out by getting a handle on uh, how our guests got into this racket, and uh, I guess that starts with how long have you been playing fantasy baseball? Oh, let's see. I started playing fantasy baseball 20 years ago. I believe this is my 20th or 21st season. Um, so it's, it's, I've been playing for quite a long time. I started playing in high school. What do you remember about those that early league and your other early leagues? Um, I remembered that I, uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I had moved out, uh, and moved in with my, my foster family and my foster father, and he had decided he was going to join a league and he thought it'd be a fun activity for us to do together. And at that point I didn't even follow baseball. Like I, I, you know, so I, I started playing fantasy baseball before I ever got interested in, in watching baseball necessarily. Uh, and so I just remember getting the pants you know, beat off of me in my first season. And I was hooked. I I'm a big competitor no matter what I'm doing. Uh, and I did not like not winning. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to learn this game. I'm going to learn how to win. Uh, and that, you know, kind of started my love affair with fantasy baseball and, and baseball in general. What kind of league was it? Uh, you're old, just old enough that you might've started with an only league that was all the rage back in mm-hmm. the day. Yes. So it was an original rules four by four American league only league. Uh, 
keeper league. Uh, we got, you know, with contracts, uh, you know, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I remember the first time somebody brought a computer to a draft and people were, you know, we, there had to be a discussion on whether that was legal or not. Um, and so like, it, it was a very old school league. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, one of those drafts that, you know, you start at eight o'clock in the morning and you finish at eight o'clock at night. Uh, and everybody just looks forward to that draft day all year. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it, I, I miss that league. I miss my home league too. And when you talk about the, the computer at draft, of course they're ubiquitous now, but I remember, uh, I had a computer that my work gave me. I was a newspaper man and I did a lot of work at night. So they said, here, take this. You can work from home instead of coming all the way out to the plant. And I thought that was great. And it was an old, uh, I think, a 8086 or 8088 chip machine with maybe one meg of RAM, something like that. And it had Lotus 123 on it. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a spreadsheet that I can use to figure out my draft and keep track of my players and stuff like that. And it was all full of named ranges and all this kind of stuff to simplify it. And I got to the draft and uh, the first player got nominated and I typed in his name. That was it. <laughs> too much, too much demand for the processor. It may still be spinning over there thirty-five years later, or whatever it is, trying to, trying to process that first guy. So I had to scramble together and grab a pencil and a piece of paper, trying to, trying to keep it going. What formats do you prefer nowadays? I mostly play on NFBC, so that, that's a you know traditional kind of five by five mixed league format. Um, I, I wish I had a little bit more of an eclectic kind of league profile, but because I play a lot on NFPC now um, and I don't have like the home league necessarily uh, to kind of fall back on, like I don't get to play a lot of like head to head points or, or, or leagues like that or, or leagues with different formats. So it's, it's, I play in 29 leagues. I'd say about 20 of them are on NFPC. Uh, then about three or four are, you know, kind of, uh, industry leagues, you know, talent, labor, things like that. Uh, and then, you know, a few dynasty leagues here, uh, here and there, cause I still love playing dynasty as well. One of my guests a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the same topic and they said that, you know, they had, they had started out playing one league and gra quickly because they liked the game so much quickly graduated up to all their where they were playing 30 or 40 and then as they get older and you know get other responsibilities and stuff it starts to dwindle down and one of the ways to 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 dwindle down without cutting your number of leagues is to cut the number of formats so there's less stuff to monitor the platforms similar so you can get on one platform and do all your moves for all your leagues at once like NFBC or if you're lucky enough to get on a, a platform that, that, that happens to share two or three of your leagues it can really speed things up and uh, how do you allocate your time amongst your various leagues at this time of year when some of them are probably out of the running and some of them are probably in the running do you find yourself focusing more on the ones that are doing well and less on the ones or not at all on the ones that are doing poorly this is something that i've you know uh, struggled with in years um and i i talked about this recently on a podcast where i said like you know often this time of year people are, are kind of getting you know they're, they're beginning to like let go of the teams that aren't doing very well if they're in 10th 11th 12th place something like that they're just like oh i'm done i'm not going to worry about that league uh but because other people do that in your leagues whether it's because football is now coming on uh, you can actually gain a lot of ground in those leagues. Uh, and I learned that the hard way a few years back where I, I, 
Uh, I was in a league. I was in like 12th place out of 15. And I said, oh, there's no way I can win this league. I'm just not going to pay attention to it. And I came back to it, you know, at the you know middle of August and looked. And I'd actually gained ground just by setting a lineup, even though I hadn't really been, you know, pay, paying really active attention. And so now I don't do that. Like I, I, it doesn't matter how many leagues I have. I'm trying to pay as close of attention as I can to every league. I think that makes it more difficult for me to do better in every league that I'm in though, because there's only so much you can do. And even someone like me who spends a lot of time devoted to all his leagues, like you're going to miss things and you're going to make more mistakes, the more teams you have. And so I think in the future, what I'm going to need to do is probably cut back on leagues so I can, because I don't like to give up even if I'm in 13th or 14th place in a league. I was on uh, Ariel Cohen's pod a week or so ago, and we talked about the ethics when you're in a league of whether you should or could or might not uh, be obliged to keep playing hard. And uh, everybody on the call agreed that kind of you should be playing as hard as you can, or at least putting in a solid effort in all your leagues, because uh, the argument is I'm not affecting the league if I don't make moves. And yeah, you are. You know, if you don't pick up a guy off waivers that you could have had, maybe somebody higher up the chain gets him and wins the league or moves up three or four spots, then you have indirectly affected the league by inaction just as much as you can affect the league by action. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's more meaningful in leagues uh, that either have high stakes, right? You're, you're putting high money into it or or high stakes by the nature of the league. So, for instance, like for us in industry league, I nothing upsets me more than when I see someone in an industry league completely give up especially if they're giving up early in the season, because that's going to affect the outcome of that league. And these leagues are supposed to show like who's good at this game in the industry and who, you know, maybe isn't as good. Uh, and so that, that definitely bothers me. And, and that's, you know, I, I run an industry league with TGFBI and I, you know, it bothers me at the same time. I think like, I also understand it, right? Like people have lives and, it's also a game and people go, well, you know what? I'm not winning the game. So why am I worried about like who come, you know, if I come in 11th versus ninth, um, or it, who else, who, you know, I'm not winning, who cares who wins? It's not going to be me. So I don't care anymore. So like, I get that kind of like attitude at the same time. Like to me, there's at least some pride on the line, even if I'm not going to win. Like, uh, the first year I was ever in an NFT main event, my team was atrocious. It was like everything that could go wrong did go wrong with that team. And I worked my butt off to make sure I didn't finish dead last um, because that's just the way I'm built. And I understand not everybody's built that way. And so I kind of give a little bit of leeway in that regard. I know a couple of guys, friends of mine and, and industry colleagues and stuff who are very vocal about the Orioles tanking and the, uh, you know, Miami tanking back in the day and even to this day and other teams who are clearly throwing in the towel because there's a, it's advantageous to them to do so, but don't think anything of tanking their own fantasy teams because they're not going anywhere and, and they have even less reason to tank it seems because there's no benefit in a redraft league to tanking. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe in a, in a redraft league like tout where you, there are, um, some benefits that accrue to playing well, but, uh, I, I don't know. What was your path from playing fantasy baseball to where you started, uh, moving up and becoming an analyst and an entrepreneur? Uh, I kind of got into this by accident. I joined a dynasty league 
um, that was formed together on a Facebook group for a podcast, the old Powers of Power podcast of Jason Collette um, and Paul Sporer back when they were in deep at BP and then when they did it on their own for a little bit, they had this Facebook kind of discussion group where people could ask, you know, questions and, or just banter about baseball. And I joined it and, uh, and someone put together a 20 team dynasty league and that 20 team dynasty league, uh, got so close over the first couple of years of doing it that someone suggested, Hey, let's set up a website and a podcast for the league itself. Um, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, listen, I don't like to talk publicly. Like, I'm not, I don't think I'd be very good on a podcast or on radio, but I'll do the writing side of things. Um, and they had me kind of guest on one of the first episodes. I think it was the first episode of the podcast. Uh, and then I just kept coming back and doing it. And it got to a point where I said, hey, listen, guys, and this was pretty quickly. I was like, this is a lot of fun and I'm enjoying doing this, but it can't just be about our league because no one cares. Like, I don't even want to listen to a podcast about just my own league, um, you know, much less does other people want to listen to it. So it's going to make it about more than that. And that's how Friends of Fantasy Benefits was born. It was born out of that 20 team dynasty league uh, with all members of that that league. Uh, and it met uh, Thompson and Mike Warner, who still co-own Friends of Fantasy Benefits with me, um, were part of that original league. Um, and, uh, yeah, it kind of grew from there. I, I then, you know, brought guests on like Paul Sporer and, and Jason Collette and Eno Saris and eventually I got offered a job over at Fangraphs and everything's just kind of grown from there. Well at Fangraphs there's a sub sort of a sub site called Rotographs which is devoted to fantasy baseball and you write a regular column uh, you write a lot at that uh, site actually not as much as you used to I don't think but you have a regular I don't know if it's a daily or very close to daily column called the Roto Write-Up. When did that start? Yeah, so the Roto Write-Up uh, has been there since before I was. Uh, and I, when I was originally hired, I was kind of uh, hired over at Fangrass Rotographs. I was hired as kind of the backup for that. Like I had my own like column each week and then like I would be like the fill-in person. And as people left to go, you know, either left the industry or, or left to go uh, get new um, opportunities within the industry eventually that kind of became my piece and it's supposed to be a daily piece but um with the pandemic last year uh, i didn't have a writing partner right because i'm not going to write seven days a week necessarily and so uh at some point i will probably get a writing partner to share the load of that but i write it four to five days a week um uh over there uh, on fan graphs uh, rotographs um, and it's just kind of like an overview of, hey, what what happened yesterday and what's going on today a, a little bit. And kind of it gives me an opportunity to kind of dig into box scores and find topics to write about, especially at this time of year. It can be kind of hard to figure out what you're going to write about. Uh, and so this is this gives me an opportunity to be like, oh, oh, I'm noticing this guy is actually, had, you know, put together two or three really good days this week. Maybe someone I need to really kind of do a deeper dive on. At the end of every rotor write-up, you have a, a few recommended pitchers, you call them, for that day and the next. I, I imagine this is aimed at DFS players, but uh, also Daily Moves players. How do you pick the pitchers that make the recommended list? So the, these are pitchers that are uh, less than 50% rostered on CBS. And I use CBS because 
they tend to cater to 12 team leagues, which I think is more common. ESPN Yahoo caters to like 10 teams, NFC caters to more 15 team leagues. So I, I felt like 12 was like a good kind of cutoff there. Um, and you know, this was part of the column originally when I when I kind of inherited. Uh, and it's also been a little bit of a bane of my existence because, you know, anytime you do well, nobody notices. And anytime you don't do well, everybody notices. Right. And so uh, it's, it's kind of a kind of a scary uh, part of the article. Right. But I, I tend to look um, one at like obviously some past performance and guys maybe who uh, have been, uh, you know, performing well in the underlying metrics, but haven't performed as well in the you know the surface metrics so they aren't as widely picked up um and i also obviously look at matchups matchups are huge for this you know i i try not to stream against really good teams unless i've got a really really good pitcher uh that maybe has like a strong split or something that makes it but often you know you're looking for guys that i think are going to be on you know 75 80 percent of rosters next month that people just haven't quite tuned into quickly enough uh and it I've been very successful outside of a pretty rough month in June. Do you play DFS? I play a fair amount of DFS. Uh, not as much as I have in previous years, just because the amount, you know, DFS takes a lot of work. Um, and I know there is like this kind of healthy competition between kind of the industry or the, uh, the season long industry and the DFS industry. And there's a little bit of crossover. Uh, but I think, being a DFS player actually makes you a better season-long player because you have to be so in tune with what is happening right now with every player. Um, and when I've done DFS analysis, which I've, I've done in the past for places like uh, Fantasy Alarm and, and Fangraphs, um, it's made my season overall better. And so I continue to play just to kind of force myself to be so much more in tune with what every player is doing you know, on any given night. I think that's right. Anything that forces you into the environment with that depth of or intensity of purpose can't help but play, pay benefits. I and mean, even if you see that a certain player has been, you know, pretty decent, who's not on a lot of season-long rosters, but you can think to yourself, I can't. I may not want to put him in my DFS lineup, or I may not even want to play a DFS lineup this week. But I'm noticing these things. And maybe he's somebody I can look at on Sunday. Uh, you set up a Google Sheets spreadsheet that anyone can look at, showing your pitcher recommendations and how they fared by month. And overall, I have to give you credit in 2021, a pretty good roster, a 370 ERA, 118 combined uh, whip. You've got uh, under a K per inning, or right around a K per inning, I guess, for all those pitchers. In July and August, I looked through Wednesday of this week, 275 ERA, 108 whip. Man, you roster that, and you're looking uh, looking pretty sharp. And again, just shy of a strikeout per inning. But June, you mentioned June, 623, 143, also a caper inning, interestingly enough. Uh, what do you think went wrong in June that went so right subsequently? I, you know, I think it's just a, a, a bad run of luck. Uh, I mean, it was... It were you know, and I think also you know June twenty first is when the the no sticky stuff uh, it kind of took effect in Major League Baseball, and I think I got hit with some guys that maybe uh, were you know using the sticky stuff before and, and couldn't adjust as quickly as maybe other people after. But I, I just think that is the nature of baseball uh, and the nature of fantasy baseball, right? I mean, they're they're going to run into kind of uh, you know bad spots here and there and sometimes that's gonna 
leave you in a little bit of slump. Uh, but as long as you're kind of vigilant, you keep working over the long run, you're going to do, you're going to do well, right? If, if you know what you're doing, and if you uh, make the, you know, good decisions, the majority of the time, things kind of come out in the wash. But yeah, June was brutal. It was, it was like nothing I could do was right. Like, I think I got a Zach Davies start, like he had like five or six quality starts out of like, you know, in one bad start. And I picked the bad start. It was just like, it's just nothing I could do was right in June, but the rest of the rest of the year has been fantastic, and and since June has been really really good. You know, got, uh, Marco Gonzalez's uh, complete game uh, let you know uh, uh, start the other night uh, on the ledger as well, so that that definitely helps things quite a bit when you get something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've been pretty good at identifying him, and there was kind of some arguments I think within the industry on on Twitter we saw early in the year where people said, you know, streaming is a bad uh, way of going about things now um, in, in fantasy baseball. And, you know, I, I think that this helps prove a little bit that it's not necessarily it's a bad strategy. It just has to be implemented right. And one of the things you'll notice if you look at, you know, the, the doc that's on there is that I don't pick guys every day. You know, there will be times where I go three or four days without, picking someone um and i explained like hey it's just not a good day for streaming there's not a lot of good options here's some high risk guys i put in the article but i'm not going to personally start any of these guys and that helps avoid the bluffs i think often people force streams uh when they shouldn't uh and that gets them in trouble and ends up hurting them overall you mentioned your high risk can't even call them recommendations. They're high-risk mentions of pitchers that you actually aren't recommending but drawing people's attention to. And you don't include them, we should say, in the, in the spreadsheet. Wouldn't be fair to your readers, wouldn't be fair to you. But just to, at a glance, how do you think you're doing with those guys? I think they're probably all over the place. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, some of them are just not good pitchers. They're either in good spots or some of them are good pitchers or decent pitchers in really bad spots. And so they're typically guys like someone uh, today, for instance, was like, well, why not, why not Brett Anderson? Like he, you know, he's been pitching well. It's like the margin for error for those guys, you know, are so, so tiny. And um, I think often, especially as we get to this point in the season, we start going, Oh, I really need wins. I really need strikeouts. And we start to kind of care less about the ratios that go along with it. And we forget that, you know, guys in the industry like Todd Zola have done really, really great studies on how much those ratio categories still move at this point. And I like, really like to protect those. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to, you know, make risky kind of Hail Mary throws with some of these high risk guys unless I have to. I think, you know, in the spots where you're in like weekly leagues, you know, or, you know, head to head leagues and stuff like that, and you've got to make Hail Mary throws at the end of the week sometimes. I get that. But um, you know, those high-risk guys, man, they're, they're high-risk for a reason, and I, I tend to try to stay away from them the best I can. Well, Justin, since we're talking about the uh, fantasy content business and how content gets in there and what you're trying to accomplish when you create content, in the last little while, it seems I've been reading an unusually high amount of content by fantasy writers who are basically explaining that they feel burned out, uh, maybe a little frustrated at the absence of career growth or readership growth. And you put more energy into this avocation, I guess we could say, or a combined vocation and avocation for you than anybody I know. What do you think is going on with this sort of little tiny upsurge in people saying, you know what, I'm just, I've had enough. 
I mean, that's a, you know, that's a tough question because I think everybody who devotes as much time and effort as people like I do into content um, creation gets to a point where they're overwhelmed, right? And especially it's really difficult for those of us who have full-time jobs outside of fantasy. I think, you know, people maybe who aren't in the industry forget like that'll the majority of us are working full-time jobs and have families and, you know, relationships or other hobbies outside of like creating this kind of content, whether it's written content or podcast content. And so it can cause a lot of burnout. And uh, I, I totally understand, you know, people who have said recently, like, hey, I'm overwhelmed or I'm just not getting out of it what I need to, to keep going at this rate. Because I've been there and I, I mean, I've had to reevaluate things myself in, you know, this season uh, and go, hey, maybe I need to not take on quite as much as I normally do because it has an effect on myself. It has an effect on my relationships, um, you know, and I hope that those people who, you know, especially because I, I know Shelly really well. Shelly is one of the people that mentioned this. Mike Kerlin, I know Mike Kerlin really well. You know, and they're really, really great analysts um, and really great people, too. And so I hope they find whatever they're looking for, whatever, it, whether that is something outside of the industry or just time off to kind of rejuvenate. But you got to take care of yourself. I think it's really important to take care of your mental health, take care of your physical health um, and, and know that it's OK that this isn't for everyone. Right. That, uh, you know, for me, I really enjoy the grind of it. And I enjoy um, doing the research and doing the content. And uh, it is, you know, outside of my, my wife and my family, it's like my number one priority, right? And so um, I, I, I can get lost in it and that's okay. And that's not for everybody. And I think understanding that that's okay, that it's not for certain people sometimes or that you may need to take a break uh, is healthy. Uh, and so maybe I think maybe part of it is people don't realize how much work goes into kind of the behind the scenes stuff, you know, and in having to prep articles and write articles and do podcasts and the research and, and all that. And they get into it and then they go, Oh man, this is a little bit too much. Uh, and they, they then need to learn to take a step back or, uh, you know, maybe it's just a matter of people kind of learning how to kind of manage those workloads. But, um, you know, I applaud those people making those decisions and, and being willing to talk about it publicly that, hey, you know what, I, you know, maybe I'm not doing so well right now and I need to reevaluate things uh, because I think that is uh, courageous and brave to admit when maybe things aren't going well. And I think there's something paradoxical about a lot of it in that the people that I most often hear talking about the fact that they find it getting more and more burdensome or more and more difficult to balance their work and their life and their outside interests and so forth is that the people who seem most affected are the people who have the most talent and who put the most work into it and who try the hardest. You know, it's fairly easy to balance your work and your life if you don't give a rat's ass about any of it. You know, you just sort of bounce from one activity to another and you think, all right, I'm done. I'll just go over now back to work, you know, grab my broom and, and, and get busy. But don't you find that it's harder to do these balanced things when you kind of want to give it a hundred percent in all of the things. And when you give a hundred percent plus a hundred percent plus a hundred percent, pretty soon you're past a hundred percent of your own capacity. 
yeah, I mean, if you're going to give 100% into, like, doing this kind of work, it, it other aspects of your life are going to suffer. Like, there's only there's only so many 100% you can give before, you know, something has to bend or break. Um, you know, I, 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 I've told people before, like, the first five years of me doing this, I slept two or three hours a, a night, um, you know, in order to produce kind of content and keep up with everything else that I was doing. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's gotten easier to, you know, manage and figure out. But I still, you know, I'm up till two or three o'clock in the morning, most nights writing or doing research or, or podcasting um, in order to kind of keep up the workload. And, and that takes a toll. And but that's what it takes for someone you know, like me to be successful. Like, I, you know, I was I was saying on a podcast recently that I wasn't blessed with like the intelligence of some people in the industry, you know, guys like, you know, Saris, who can, you know, dissect pitching so well, like just naturally, or the Nick Pollock guys, Alex Sass guys like that. And so in order for me to keep up with the people like that, like I have to work twice as hard as they do. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that is a little bit frustrating, but also what I have to do in order to keep up. Um, and so like, I understand like people going like, man, I, I can't keep up that kind of work pace because I know why I struggle with it at times. Um, but it's, it is, you know, on, on one side of the coin, I'm, you know, proud of people like Shelly and Mike for, for kind of talking about their struggles and like, Hey, maybe we need to take a step back at the same time. Like you said, like these are super talented people and I, I love reading their stuff and listening to them and, um, and learning from them. Uh, so it is a little bit of a bummer in that regards, but, you know, hopefully they, they go find what they need. And, uh, if they come back, they come back stronger. And not that anybody asked me, but, uh, I think it helps that as you get your career in this little field advances, you do just get better at the, the small parts of the process. You just, you get into the, the, the rhythm of it for want of a better term. And it's not like you have to open that spreadsheet and figure out how a spreadsheet works and how oh, is it plus or equals, you know, those kind of questions what that, that you do have when you're starting out and it's not a muscle memory type of thing. And as you get, you know, 20 years in your case or more than that for me, like a lot of the research that we do, you know, you, you have to learn about, uh, StatCast, which is a, a fairly new thing, but it's all based on a foundation of knowledge that you had from Baseball Info Solutions or from just the spreadsheets at, at Baseball HQ or something like that. So you're used to the idea of how to do this and the learning curve is maybe a little shorter than it is for somebody who hasn't got the same depth of experience in the in the industry. I'd like to say to those people, you know, just keep plugging because it does easier it does get better but at the same time i know that it also can be very frustrating and as you said i'm very admiring of somebody you can say you know what i'm doing a reality check here gonna see uh, where this actually fits in i had a conversation on the tgfbi podcast with mike curland um a few months ago and we talked about a little of this kind of stuff and um and he you know, one of the things I said was, you know, asked him was like, have you sat down and actually thought like, what's the goal? Like, what is the goal here? Because for some people, the goal is just, uh, you know, have fun and produce content. Like, this is just a hobby. And then for some people, the goal is I want to be full time in this industry. And this is how I need to achieve this goal. And I think being, you know, realistic about what your goal is and really kind of identifying that and what your path to that end goal is, like, really helps clarify things. 
Like if you're if you're not planning on or, or hoping to be full time in this industry, then you probably don't need to stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning every night doing work, you know, towards that kind of goal, um, you know, or maybe, you know, even if you're if you're your goal is something like that, you know, intensive, you know, maybe you need to figure out a better scheduling for yourself because scheduling is huge for me. Like I have. I have scheduled exactly how long I write, how long I research, how long I podcast on a little chart. And then I have scheduled myself nights off. I don't work on Wednesday night. Wednesday night is date night with me and my wife. I don't come into my office. Uh, you know, I, you know, Friday night is family night. I don't come into my office, you know, and there's no article coming out for me on Thursday or on Sunday because of that. And that's okay. Like I have to make sure I schedule that like family time that, you know, time with my spouse uh, to make sure that it gets done. Cause otherwise, you know, I, I'm not living up to my other responsibilities. Mike kind of put out an open letter. He referred to it on Twitter, but he linked to it. It was just an open Google doc. And he said he wanted to let a lot of people that he thought were also in his position know that they're not alone in it. And that his position was a guy who is coming to the realization that maybe you mentioned goals that, he kind of came to the realization that he might not accomplish the goals he had set in this business to make money at it, to, to make it into a career of some kind. What do you think someone can do when they have that thought, when it suddenly strikes them, you know what, I'm not going to be Tom Brady. You know what, I'm not going to be Tom Cruise. I can maybe dabble around the edges of you know dinner theater or whatever, but that career is just not going to happen for me. How do you, what's, a, what's a mentally healthy way to respond? I mean, I don't, I, I think that it's trying to set up achievable goals for yourself early on. I think often like we come in, um, into things like this and we go, okay, I want to be, you know, Saris, I want to be Paul Spore. I want to be one of these guys in the industry that, you know, are full time that are really well known and respected. Um, and I mean, not to say that people can't get to those heights. I think you can, but those guys didn't get there overnight either, right? Like, you know, th those guys put in long hours, working hard, uh, and, and struggled, went through their own struggles early on. I think for, for someone like me, I, I was lucky that I got into this, like I said, kind of by accident. And I never really thought it was going to turn into anything more than just my podcast with like 20 listeners right um and so i've surprised myself but i also kind of made small achievable goals um so that way i wasn't like disappointed i think you know and my, mike talked about this when him and i talked is i think he he has this idea that um or had this idea that like oh i'm going to be full-time like that is what's going to happen uh and because it didn't happen quickly and quickly enough like he got a little bit discouraged and I kind of disagree with him because I think he is a Tom Brady esque kind of talent. I think maybe he just needs to be a little bit more patient. And I think patience is key in this industry because, um, and Jeff Erickson told me once, like I was once kind of bemoaning like that I wasn't full time, uh, in the industry. And he looked at me, he goes, you'll get there if you keep working the way you're working. And I have no doubts guys, uh, like Mike Berlin, women like, uh, Shelly, uh, the, uh, will get to like that kind of status if that's what they want and they can work. But I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that 
everything takes time. And, you know, yes, there are people in this industry that have risen to really high heights overnight or very, very quickly. Um, but those are, you know, those are kind of different circumstances than most of us have. A lot of us have to grind for a long time in order to get to those kind of heights. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily unattainable for anyone as long as you're willing to put in the effort. It just, it takes a lot of effort and that effort has to be given over a long, long period of time. I wonder if there's an element of the growth of the industry kind of requiring that there's going to be some kind of shakeout at some point and that when the trees start to rattle and the people start falling out of the trees and the, and the, the survivors are hanging onto the branches that it's not necessarily going to be fair. It may mm-hmm. be that, that somebody who does have talent like Mike or Shelley looks around and says, and we've all had this experience, I think, I'm looking at somebody in, in, my, in my office or in the fantasy content creation industry or, or you know, playing hockey on the, on the weekends. I know I'm better than that person. I know I'm more skilled and more talented, and yet there they are hanging onto the branch, and here I am lying on the ground looking up and uh, hoping that I don't get hit on the head by an acorn. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I know for a fact I have felt those feelings, and I know for a fact that other people have felt those feelings about me. So, like, you know, uh, the grass is a little bit greener on the other side always, right? So, I mean, like, uh, there have been plenty of times where I've seen people get jobs within the industry and go, how did they get that job over me? Like, you know, or like, how am I not have that kind of job? And I'm sure there, I know that for a fact, like I said, there are people who've told me like, you know, later on after the fact, like, you've gotten things that I thought I deserved. Um, and like, that's just part of, part of kind of life and the game, you know, things aren't going to be fair. There are going to be times where uh, things, you know, don't go the way we expect them to do. And then I think there are times where the universe gives us back a little bit of that and, and we get things maybe that we shouldn't have got or uh, or we, we are rewarded for the, the skills and the effort that we put in you know uh, you know part of the part of the you know privilege that I have is that I'm in a position in which you know I have a spouse who's very supportive that allows me to do a lot of extra work that other people can't do right um, if you're a single father or a single mother, it's really hard for you to then produce content after your 40 hour week job, right? Cause you take care of kids by yourself or, you know, um, some of us aren't privileged enough to have the abilities that maybe others do. Um, and that's, you know, that's unfortunate. My, you know, I like working at places, uh, like friends of fantasy benefits. I think TGFBI is a place that, um, uh, that helps kind of shine a light on some of these people. Uh, I think one of the best parts about TGFBI has been it's given really good analysts a little bit more recognition uh, and shown like who are some really good players in the industry are, because I think there are people that I'm sure feel like, Hey, I'm really good at this, but nobody ever sees it because Justin Mason has the big job or the big name. Right. Um, And so I I hope that there are avenues um, in, in this industry that can kind of highlight some of that. And I think TGFBI has been one of, them, and I'm glad to have been a part of that for at least a little bit. TGFBI, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, is of 345 teams, I think. Uh, anybody who's kind of trying to be a content creator out there is welcome to come in, and it's a lot of fun. It's a great competition. 
how much of the issue for people trying to, especially people trying to make a living at it, arises because there's so many other people who are also trying to get into the business and almost all of them are willing to work for free or for peanuts. And because there's so many of them, there's no incentive for the big operators who will pay you to pay all but the very best. Is is our content creation environment sort of killing its own uh, babies uh, before they get a chance to, to grow up? I think yes and no. I think the fact that there are so many, um, you know, unpaid positions out there, especially from uh, sites that probably can't afford to pay something, uh, uh, that uh, that it makes it difficult. I, I think part of the issue is um, there are there's just so few full time positions that that are available, right? And so your own and, and you have to not only be good at the content portion of things, but also be good at other aspects that aren't really about being an, an analyst, right? Like there's an entertainment value to writing and podcasting that you have to be good at in order to, uh, in, in order to land one of these jobs, right? And sometimes those outweigh the actual analysis portion of things, right? And I think people, I think that's where you start to see people get upset, like, oh, I'm better than this guy but this guy's just a better talker. Well, that is a huge part of being like, you know, being an analyst is, you know, we're, we're not so much players as we are coaches, right? And it, it's a huge difference in terms of, you can be one of the best players in the world. Phil Dassault is a fantastic player right now in, in the NFBC. Um, and like, he's got, I think, three top 15 teams in the main event overall, but that doesn't mean he can go in coach people I'm not saying that he couldn't I'm sure he actually probably could have. um but just because you're a good player doesn't mean you're a good coach um and so I think you you know these these roles that these especially these major uh um industry kind of companies have to try to get uh you know try to get filled um full-time I I think that there because there's so few of them that you know, it's it's going to be hard for people to get those heights. I, I think that going the route of either you're going to grind out working three or four different jobs in the industry or hope that your own project can launch you into a full time role is is one of the only ways you can do it and hope that eventually maybe a big guy takes notice of you. But it's hard. There's just not that many roles out there. Something you said that I thought was really interesting is. The fact that you're good at the game doesn't necessarily mean you're good at writing about it, at analyzing it, at talking about it, and these kinds of things. The the, the skill set that you require, in fact, probably doesn't even require you to be particularly good at the game as long as you can analyze it successfully, especially in experts leagues where so much of it is luck. They're mostly pretty good players. They're mostly pretty smart players. And in any given year, you're going to be lucky if you're going to finish with a top ranking or to win a league. And for that reason, I don't think people should put that much stock in where people finish in these experts leagues, because ultimately what makes them useful to you as a consumer is, do they know what they're talking about? Can they back it up with evidence and research? 
and can they express it clearly and sometimes entertainingly as well? And those are all multiple skill sets that I think anybody who aspires to any kind of longevity in this business, and especially if they want to make some money, needs to be real honest and look at themselves and say, you know, it's like the, the I used to be a speechwriter for business people, and, and they would come to me and say, I want you to put some jokes into my into my speech. And I'd say, well, let me start with a question. Are you the kind of guy that gets laughs at a party? Because if you're not, it isn't going to work. You know, there are some people who can tell jokes and there are some people who can't. And there are some people who are glib or, or fluent or articulate in speech. There are some people who write well and, and can carry a, a story by, uh, by writing. And there are some people who can't. So don't make the mistake. I guess my advice is if you win every league you go in, don't make the mistake that that makes you a, the kind of person who can make a living or, you know, earn money or, or be in, involved at full time in this racket. I, I think it's a really, really good point because I think there are some, there, there are some really, really good players in the industry. Um, there are some really, really good communicators and coaches in this industry. Uh, and those things aren't, of, those things aren't always mutually exclusive, right? Like just because you're not, you know, just because you're a really good player doesn't mean you know how to communicate to other people how to win. Um, and uh, and just because you are a good communicator doesn't mean you're good at the game necessarily. And so uh, it's it's kind of a difficult proposition to figure out who those people are, too. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, there was a while ago on Reddit, there was like this thing going around that had like tracked like how every major analysts uh had done in tout wars labor tgfbi like they, they had like put together this huge spreadsheet to kind of point out like who's good at playing and who's not and my argument um to a lot of them uh to people uh who were, were kind of trashing some of the analysts who were at the bottom of that list was like does it matter if if someone is good at the game if they can teach you how to win like, I, I don't think that, like, yes, obviously we all want to be good at the game, and I don't think people get into this, into the analysis side of things unless they think they're good at the game. Uh, but I don't think you need to be a good player necessarily to be a good analyst. I think that we all have different uh, strengths, and we all have different weaknesses. I think self-awareness and understanding where your weaknesses are and I try to be really upfront when I make mistakes or when I, you know, make bad calls. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my success in something like Tout Wars or Labor or TGFBI has no bearing on what I think of myself as an analyst. Um, you know, individual leagues really mean nothing except for to my bank account um, uh, or as fodder for, for my content. You know, I love the industry leagues because they're a fun way to hang out with people, get to know people and try different things. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, whether or not I'm successful in them, I don't think it makes or breaks me as an analyst. I agree. And I use the experts leagues and all the leagues I play in as fodder for analysis because playing in the game, the thing I like about it is that it makes me think, or it gives me the opportunity, maybe better to say, it gives me the opportunity to think about the game in ways. How can I move in the categories? What could I do at the draft? All of these kind of things. And once I think about them, then I sit down and I write about them and I'm pretty good at writing. So, you know, it works. It works for the audience that I've amassed over the years. Sometimes I come on here and talk about it and that seems to work for some people. I like the analogy you drew to coaches 
because the first thing that popped into my mind was Scotty Bowman was a very low level, not that good hockey player, but he might've been the greatest coach the league has ever had. And Wayne Gretzky, clearly the best hockey player anybody ever saw and has ever been in the National Hockey League. He coached, he coached Phoenix. You know what? <laughs> Nobody's going to remember Wayne Gretzky as a hockey coach. And so I think you're right. I think those are two different skills. Playing things or doing the activity and teaching things or teaching the activity are two different skill sets. And, and I think people who want to be in either side of that need to understand, like you said, I can write about this really well. doesn't mean I'm going to be good at playing and maybe I shouldn't be playing the main event at $1,700 a pop. Or I can write, a, uh, I'm really good at this game. I should go and tell Justin Mason to give me a job because I, I can win leagues. And Justin Mason says, yeah, but, you know, your writing is not that great or, you know, you, you don't, you're not that articulate, stuff like that. Uh, I'm curious about where you think the market is going, Justin, especially with regard to the rapid, wide legalization of gambling, sports gambling. How is that going to affect the content market for fantasy and the fantasy market itself? I mean, I think that we're going to continue to see pushes towards um, DFS and, and gambling as, you know, because there's money in it, right? There's a ton of money in it. Um, and that's, I think, overall good for the industry uh, as a whole, because, you know, this is almost like uh, how college football pays for almost all the other sports, right? Because college football brings in all this money, college basketball brings in all this money, and it pays for a school's fencing team like it pays for a school's swimming team um and uh you know i mean for me my 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 true love in fantasy baseball is the season-long game right um but there are less people playing it it's not as popular as it used to be largely because there's other options right um but dfs is hugely popular sports betting is hugely popular if those things are going to bring more money and more people into the game uh, that I love, uh, I, I'm totally here for it. Uh, you know, I hope that people don't lose sight of what I think is important about fantasy, which is that it's a game you're supposed to have fun doing, right? Um, and, you know, when you start getting, you know, gambling involved with things, often people can forget, like, hey, I, I play fantasy because it's a fun game, you know, um, and, and not a job necessarily. Uh, though, I mean, for content creators, I guess it is somewhat of a job. But uh, at the same time, uh, anything that, you know, brings more money, more uh, more jobs into the industry, right? You know, DFS has brought a lot more jobs in the industry. Sports betting will bring more jobs into the industry um, and give people other avenues to produce better content, which helps everybody. Uh, I, I embrace and I, I hope it, it works well as long as it's well uh, regulated well. There's an economic theory. Uh, Scott Galloway talks about this on his podcast a lot that says the availability of large audiences because of the internet is inexorably pushing all the money to the top few people. You establish a big brand for yourself, uh, maybe on a, a like Substack or something like that. You don't even need ESPN anymore. You don't need Baseball HQ anymore. If you're well enough established and skilled enough and lucky enough and driven enough, you could just become a one-person brand in the content creation area and just get you and a handful of others could get 95% of the money that's coming into it because you have that 
ability to reach a huge audience. And I wonder when you look at the future five, 10 years from now, do you see a world where the number of people doing this is greater or lesser or about the same? How's that all going to shake out? I mean, I think it, I think there'll be kind of a, I think it's going to kind of continue ebb and flow. And I think what we've seen, especially at least in the time that I've been doing this in the industry, um, you know, so the last six, seven years um, is kind of these kind of ebbs and flows of like explosions of content creators. And then all of a sudden it kind of quiets down for a while. And then there's explosion. And I think we saw another explosion through kind of the pandemic, right? Because people were stuck at home. They couldn't go out and hang out with their friends. They, you know, they weren't going out to movies. They weren't going out to bars. They were stuck in the home in front of a computer. Like, well, what do I like? Oh, I like fantasy sports. I'm going to write about it or I'm going to podcast. I'm going to get a mic and podcast about it. And so I, thought, I think we saw a huge explosion because of 2020 and now into 2021 and people being stuck at home. I think that'll even out because, you know, we've seen, you know, like we we're talking about with, with the people who are kind of stepping back that it takes a lot of work. And, you know, people get that initial surge and they're like, oh, great. And then, you know, the people who either aren't serious or don't want to put in as much work, you know, they, they'll end up fading away. Um, and so I think it'll kind of go up and down in terms of the amount of content creators uh, we have. Um, I, I do like that there's lots of different avenues now, you know, for people with the video, with you know, different, uh, different mediums and, you know, different formats with DFS and gambling and in season long. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways for people to, uh, to produce content and, uh, and hopefully eventually get paid for content. Um, you know, I, I think there will always be a need for the baseball HQs and the ESPNs and, um, you know, all kind of the major outlets. But I think it's nice that there are also ways for people to go out on their own and do things uh, that, uh, you know, can be independent and, and, and find some reward, whether it be through notoriety or, by, uh, you know, financial gain, uh, being able to do it on your own. I think that's pretty cool. But the, the big names aren't going anywhere either. Justin, you're known as a really effective entrepreneur in fantasy sports. It seems like you enjoy putting uh, these kinds of ideas together, little companies, uh, operations, and and managing them successfully. And it put me in mind of uh, of the pitching list, uh, pitchers list uh, website, uh, Alex Fast and Nick Pollock, and those guys. And it seems like what they what they did successfully uh, in, in an entrepreneurial sense is. They realized that there was an opportunity because of the new information that was out there. If they grasped onto it, started to learn how to manhandle it into into a shape that could be translated into baseball fans' use or baseball fantasy players' use. And I wonder, do you see those kind of entrepreneurial opportunities maybe being a more fast track to, to being successful? You know, if you want to work for a good company, make your own company and build it up kind of an approach because of the increasing amounts of new ideas that are coming into the sport from the technology and from the science? Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that, um, I mean, I think we're just living in a really good age for that. Right. I mean, if, if I wanted to start my own site, uh, 15 years ago, I really need, I had to have some technical know-how. Right. And there weren't as many people around that had that technical know-how. 
in order to make those ideas a reality. And the people that did have those ideas, you know, that ended up start, you know, Ron Chandler starting baseball HBU, you know, Rotorwire getting started, like those people, you know, were ahead of the curve, right? Um, and were able to establish themselves, um, you know, and, uh, you know, Nick has, you know, done a really, really good job of, you know, one, Nick's a really smart guy. Like, you know, Nick is just, he's a brilliant guy himself. He knows a lot about baseball. Um, but he's also taught himself a lot about the technical side and brought in people to help him with the technical side. Uh, and done a really good job of just recruiting a lot of great talent. Um, and I, I think that if you have the, you know, the, you know, content knowledge, you know, the analysis knowledge, and then you also have the understanding of the technical side of things to a really good regard, then yeah, you're going to be able to build something maybe quicker, especially if you have unique ideas. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that uh, often people, when they come into the industry, uh, they go, oh, you know, I want to be like Tristan Cockrell, you know, or used to be, I want to be like Matthew Barry, right? Um, or I want to be like this person. Um, and they, they start modeling their content after what that person does or has done. Uh, but they're not breaking any new ground. And I think what Nick did was he was like, I, I, he looked for a spot um, in the industry that was lacking. And he goes, I want this to be my ground. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be someone else. I'm going to be me and I'm going to do something different. And people will recognize how awesome it is that there's something new and exciting. So I think if you're, if you want to kind of set yourself apart and like have this huge growth like Nick and Alex have had in the industry, you know, um, you've got to do something different, right? You've got to do something well and do something well that's different than other people are doing. And Pitcher List is amazing example i mean they've got like 200 employees now they're one of the biggest employers in the industry at this point um and you know they're they're new they're newer you know they they came into the industry i think after i did so uh it's it's been really impressive to watch but i think their model is the right way to go about it i agree uh well, this has been really interesting, Justin. You want to take a quick break, grab yourself a water and a sandwich or something like that. I've got to do the uh, National American League News with Harold Nichols, and then we'll come back in a minute and talk about some players. Sounds great. Justin Mason writes and podcasts for Rotographs, writes for Friends with Fantasy Benefits, appears on the TGFBI podcast and others. Busy guy. He'll be back again a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League News and the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, including Randy Orozarena, Tariq Skubal, and Chad Green. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus looks at prospects on the rise in the American League West, including Nick Prato in Kansas City, Jose Miranda in Minnesota, and Renato Nunez in Detroit. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at reliability during the dog days, calling out the most and least reliable save sources for the rest of the season. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, 
buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders based on skills, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on vacation this week. So here with our National League news and the American League report is our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Patrick. We'll start with a bit of a non-story story. The Brewers have activated relief pitcher Josh Hader from the COVID injury list. They sent down a a pitcher named Hobie Milner. Not a big deal. I expect that uh, Hader will just go straight back into the closer role. Uh, Yes, I'm sure he will. Uh, With a blowout uh, on uh, on Thursday night, uh, he was out there and threw it through the last inning and uh, got to get his feet back under him. And uh, I'm assuming he'll be the closer as soon as they have a, a close, a uh, safe situation. Tom Kephart noted 67 strikeouts, 14 walks in 39 innings. That's the kind of value you can't get from a lot of pitchers. So if Josh Hader's sitting on your bench or if for some miraculous reason he's available in your free agent pool, then you want to grab up uh, uh, Josh Hader as quick as you can. But you want him active, that's for sure. Uh, uh, we talked a week or so ago about Mookie Betts. Uh, he had some hip trouble. They thought he could sort of rehab his way through it without going on the IL. Eventually he went on the IL. He came off the IL. Well, now he's back on the IL. This hip problem is not getting any better. What's the latest from Los Angeles? Well, Jock Thompson says he watched him run the bases and uh, he subsequently pulled from his August 6th contest. And uh, Jock had already adjusted his playing time downward, anticipating that he would go back on the IL. His hip problem apparently is not going away. Uh, we've cut his playing time another 20%, but that may still be conservative. Uh, playing time beneficiaries down the stretch are Cody Bellinger and Matt Beatty, both of whom were in Wednesday's lineup, uh, starting outfielders versus Philadelphia. Uh, check the, uh, uh, the Los Angeles team page for projections uh, ongoing as we uh, as we continue making adjustments. And I did check them, and we see Cody Bellinger's up to 60% of the playing time. Betts is down to 55, so they've made an adjustment there. The issue might be uh, Cody Bellinger's sort of a high second-round pick. It really hasn't been a high second-round player this year. He has not, not at all. And uh, been, uh, I've got him on, on one league, and he's been sitting on my bench when he's been playing because he hasn't... Uh, Hasn't really caught fire yet. Uh, did it a home run the other night. And so there's still a possibility that Bellinger could get back to the kind of productivity that you wanted from him. But uh, he certainly has not been very productive so far. He's hitting 180 with a 275 on base percentage, a 355 slugging percentage for a 630 OPS. 630 OPS, Jock, if you're not making the kind of money Cody Bellinger is, is usually a ticket to a league that starts with the letter A. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, so I, you know, Bellinger has certainly been a disappointment, uh, not the first or second round pick that, uh, that you paid for him. If you, if you got him that way, and, uh, what, what can we say at this point? Maybe he'll have a great September. 
Raises an interesting question, though, doesn't it, uh, Nick? We've got a guy like Cody Bellinger is probably on our bench at the moment, as he is on yours. At what point do you just say, I've got to cut bait and try something else because this just isn't working? Well, you know, there's certainly there's certainly a, uh, uh, a percentage in doing that, uh, you know. But on the other hand, you would hate to drop him and uh, put him back out there in the waiver wire, have somebody else pick him up and have him catch fire in September. So that's one of those uh, difficult decisions you have to deal with at this time of year. Over the last week, I was just checking Baseball HQ's player pages, and uh, he's got a 208 base performance value, which is just outstanding. He really was wailing the cover off the ball. But overall, for the year, his base performance value is 21, which is, again, sub-replacement. And uh, the projection is for maybe 65, which is, again, not that great. Uh, One of the reasons he's had such a good outcome this week is a very high home run per fly ball rate, 50%. That's not sustainable. Uh, Expected batting average of 400. That's probably not sustainable. Overall, I think guys like Cody Bellinger make an interesting sort of tactical case, a use case for people who are looking at fantasy baseball strategy because it forces you to consider how willing can you be to accept what they call in economists talk a sunk cost. You're not going to get the money back. You're not going to get to go back in time and do your second round pick over again. You're stuck with this guy. And then the question is, at some point, don't you have to just say, I know he's a second round guy, or I spent $24 in an auction or or words to that effect, but I got to do something else because whatever's going on here, whether it's a hidden injury or a overt injury, whatever the case might be, it's just not working. Right. That's right. It obviously isn't. And so at some point you have to make the decision. Of course, you don't want to do things like that. Um, uh, willy nilly. You, you want to think about, is there somebody better out there that I can pick up or it's what's on the waiver wire at this point, just uh, the same level of uselessness that Cody Bellinger has been. And, of course, a little more added playing time pressure from Chris Taylor, who was playing a lot of infield, but now they have uh, trade-acquired Trey Turner so that the uh, infield playing time shrunk down a little bit for Chris Taylor, but they want him in the lineup. He's probably been their best hitter this year. So out he goes to the outfield, and A.J. Pollock's having a terrific year. Uh, So it comes down to Bellinger and Betts, and you can bet that when Betts comes back, if Betts comes back, but uh, let's assume that he does, Cody Bellinger's going to find it really difficult to find a place to play because there's no DH in that league. Right, absolutely. They may may eventually get to a, a playing time squeeze, that begins to limit Cody Bellinger's at-bats if he doesn't uh, stay on fire as he's been for the last week. In my great fantasy baseball invitational roster, I've had Johnny Cueto on and off the roster probably three or four times, and every time I add him, he either has a bad outing or goes on the IL. And sure enough, I got him again last week, and sure enough, there he is back on the 10-day IL. He's got a forearm problem, uh, which is always uh, bad. They call it a flexor strain, I think, which often is a precursor to worse. The team recalled infielder Tyro Estrada. He's uh, not going to join the rotation, obviously. The Giants' rotation was already pretty dicey with uh, Aaron Sanchez being designated for assignment. Is there any chance Sanchez comes back? What happens with Cueto on the I.L.? Well, you know, given given the luck that you've had with him, you need to just put a public announcement out there that you picked him up and the rest of us can run away from him. But uh, right at this point, uh, we're assuming that uh, uh, Anthony DiSclefani comes back from the I.L. Uh, fairly soon over the next couple of days when his minimum stint is up. Uh, that would still leave the Giants short of a fifth starter and likely looking at bullpen games 
unless they can figure out something else. So uh, Giants rotation is in a bit of a shambles at the moment. And it couldn't come at a worse time for the Giants, who are really in a terrific battle in that uh, National League West. There's wildcard implications. There's division winning implications. A lot going on in San Francisco, and it's a great story. And it sure would be a shame if we, all of a sudden we saw that story kind of get undermined by uh, an inability to keep their pitchers on the field. Uh, speaking of pitchers and speaking of the National League West, in San Diego, they were having a bit of rotation trouble, and guess what? They reached out and grabbed Craig Stammen, a career relief pitcher, and a very successful one at that. And he started a game on Tuesday, and the expectation is they're going to keep stretching him out. Maybe he stays in the rotation all year. What do we make of this at BaseballHQ.com? Yeah, he might indeed. He'd been very good all season. 2.71 ERA, 7.1 command through seven innings pitch. Uh, and so now he got a chance to up his innings a bit. Uh, it's difficult seeing stamina as more than a two to four inning opener of a bullpen game. Not likely to get you any fantasy win in that kind of role, but good enough to roster in deep leagues and otherwise keep track of. This comes on the heel of Chris Paddock's recent IL stint, uh, David Weather's recent ineffectiveness, Denilson Lamette's IL stint uh, that's now going on seven weeks. Uh, Padres are another team that's uh, seen every other day pitching rotation adjustments, so keep an eye on that. But stamina might. Uh, you know, might, might begin to get a few more innings. He's pitching very well. Uh, if they decide to put him in as the number two starter, of course, in that uh, bullpen game, then he could get a win going only two innings. So uh, an interesting guy to keep track of at this point, somebody who's pitching well uh, and is likely to get more innings uh, in the in the very near future. The San Diego rotation right now shakes down with you, Darvish, and Joe Musgrove at the top. Blake Snell, bit of an iffy proposition in that the number three spot. Then Paddock, you mentioned. And Baseball HQ actually has Craig Stammen listed as the fifth starter in the rotation, kind of in a tie with Denelson Lamette. But as you said, Nick, uh, Denelson Lamette's injury problems just seem to go on and on and on. And they bring him back every so often, and he throws four pitches and says, ow, and you know, off he goes. And another four weeks later, he comes back and does the same thing. Thing. So I think this Craig Stammen experiment, they might even be able to stretch him out to five innings, but I like the idea that they might say, let's get a fireballer in there for that first time through and then let Craig Stammen pitch, you know, three or four innings in the position you mentioned that could lead to a few wins down the stretch. And of course, in most fantasy formats, every win is really vital. It certainly is at this point. I, the, the wins are extremely vital as we head into the last, uh, the last month and a half. And speaking of the rotation, uh, Greg Pyron covers the National League East in playing time tomorrow, which is a roster forecasting service at BaseballHQ.com. And he mentioned uh, that that rotation's due for a little bit of uh, overturn or a little bit of upheaval maybe. I don't know what you can exactly call it, but they have two guys coming back from the IL in uh, Ian Anderson and Huascar Inoa, who was uh, off to a terrific start this year before he went on the IL. What does Greg Pyron say is likely to happen at, in Atlanta with these two pitchers returning? Well, at least one of Tukey of Tucson and Kyle Muller uh, figures to be exiting rotation very soon with those two guys coming back. Uh, Anderson is scheduled to make a second minor league rehab start with AAA Gwinnett on August 11th. Uh, as of now, expected he'll need one additional rehab outing before he's team ready. Uh, Inoa threw 65 pitches in an August 6th rehab appearance. Next rehab outing, which I think was on the 12th, could be his last. Uh, while the Braves are stretching him out to be a starter, there's still a chance he could pitch out of the bullpen upon his return. Muller would seem to be at greatest risk to lose his spot at the moment. 
Uh, 23-year-old rookie has a shiny 2.88 ERA, 1.11 whip over 34 innings pitched, but that's come with a 12% walk rate and a 4.47 uh, expected earn run average. He also failed to log five innings in two of his last four starts, completed more than five innings, just one of his seven starts. Uh, Toussaint recalled, was recalled on July 20th, hit the ground running with two very good outings. Uh, the Brewers knocked him around in his third outing, but he bounced back with a solid fourth start. Overall, he has a 4.43 ERA, 3.59 XERA, 1.12 whip, uh, 18% uh, strikeout minus walks uh, in 22 innings pitched. Our guess right now is that Anoa comes back as a starter based on his success earlier this year and the idea that it doesn't make a ton of sense to have him build up pitch counts and rehab starts if the plan is to utilize him as a reliever. Uh, we'll be interested to see how this shakes out. Chance the Braves to wind up opting for uh, a six-man rotation even if it's uh, not technically labeled as one. It's got to be nice for Atlanta to have this many options that they're looking at. I know Muller, as you said, has not been, a, 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 he's been a bright, shiny toy, but he hasn't had actually all that much skill support for his achievements. But Tuki Toussaint, I thought, looked pretty good in his start so far. And of course, Inoa looked terrific in the early going. Ian Anderson has been a, a useful starter as well. So that they are definitely going to have options. And the paradoxically interesting thing about that, Nick, is that when a team has options in the rotation, it doesn't usually bode well for anybody who has them on a fantasy roster because pitchers all of a sudden find themselves in non-starting or short-run roles. Right, absolutely. So it's one of those situations where uh, you, you hope this situation shakes itself out fairly quickly uh, for fantasy, uh, your, your fantasy team. And if you've got more than one of these guys on your roster, uh, you could be able to really be confused over the next week or two. And staying in that uh, playing time tomorrow roster forecasting space, Dan Marcus covered the National League West in the most recent edition, and he talked about Fernando Tatis. And I think this is an interesting thing. I heard this story a few days ago on other media, and I was really interested to read Dan's take on this because the news out of San Diego is that they're going to try to prevent him from having surgery on his shoulder until the offseason and try to get him back into the lineup, but not as a shortstop. The word is that they might try to put him out there in center field to cut down on the hurly-burly around the second base bag, double plays, and the, nece the necessity to throw from unusual angles and those kind of things. What do you make of this? Well, you know, interesting reports have come out, as you said about that. And he's gotten re reps as a center fielder and may return to play exclusively in the outfield. That would clog an already crowded outfield. Uh, Tommy Pham, Will Myers, Trent Grisham, uh, and Tatis will be left to jockey around for playing time. That move, the potential move, would also have an interesting effect on the infield alignment. Since Tatis has gone down, Jake Cronenworth has played primarily at shortstop. However, the injury has also gotten uh, Haseon Kim more involved as he's drawn two starts in the team's five games without Tatis. Uh, recent acquisition, Adam Frazier, has begun to gain playing time nearly exclusively at second base. That type of rotation could remain in place should Tatis play in the outfield to close the season. Tatis will almost certainly have surgery in the offseason to clear that shoulder issue up. It'll be interesting to see whether the team uses his injury history as an excuse to move him on off the shortstop position long-term. Although Tatis is regularly on highlight reels for his defensive plays, the metrics suggest that his defense is actually subpar. Uh, measured in the 24th percentile and outs above average, also recording minus uh, seven defensive runs saved, 20 errors. Uh, though C.J. Abrams had his... Uh, 
season ended prematurely. He accrued 183 plate appearances in Double A. Strong bet to appear in the minors at some point in 2022, and a near lock in the majors at some point in 2022, a near lock for 2023, and that would give them another shortstop option. Uh, if the team feels they can both upgrade defensively at the position and protect Tatis's health, now maybe the time to convince Tatis to move to the outfield. You know, Nick, when I read Dan Marcus's report on this, I saw that he said, as you reported, uh, Tatis will be left to jockey for playing time with Tommy Pham, Myers, and Grisham. And I thought to myself, if Tatis is out there, he's not going to be jockeying for playing time. He's going to play. But then I thought, well, maybe Dan's onto something here because even if they put him out in the outfield to save wear and tear on his shoulder, they still may give him some days off to make sure that that shoulder gets plenty of time to rest and recover. Particularly, I'm thinking of a scenario where maybe he has a couple of really tough throws from center field, try to get a guy at the plate or throw into third base or something like that, or maybe they're just going to tell him don't even bother and just chase down those fly balls out there. But I can see Tatis not getting full-time playing time in the outfield because they want to try to soft pedal this whole uh, balance of the season for him. Yes, I, I can see that happening as well. I mean, this is a, San Diego certainly has playoff aspirations and wants, and, and Tatis is a major part of the lineup in terms of his, his offense. So you want to watch him. You get, a, you get a good lead. He may be the kind of guy you take out because uh, you figure they're not coming back from 10 runs down. So let's give Tatis some rest. So those are the kind of things you could see with Tatis for the remainder of the season and attempts to keep him healthy for the playoffs. And I was also interested in the idea of uh, Ha-Song Kim getting more involved. Uh, He's had a couple of starts, as you mentioned. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more of Adam Frazier at second, Cronenworth at short, than we see of of Kim. Uh, Kim is still struggling offensively. He's at a 637 OPS uh, so far this year, a little bit better in the last little while, but overall he's had a lot of struggles in his uh, debut since he came over from Korea. And uh, Cronenworth's having a good year. Frazier's having a great year. I, I just don't see Kim getting a lot of playing time. If that's what people are looking at, thinking maybe this is a buy opportunity. It depends on your league. It depends on who you would be replacing, of course. But in general, I would say I'm probably not as optimistic on Kim as some might be. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, uh, Adam Fraser and Jake Cronenworth are pretty good, uh, good uh, second base shortstop combination, and so I agree with you. I don't think Kim is going to break into that very much. Well, Cronenworth has an 835 OPS, and Fraser I think is up around a thousand. So uh, when you're talking about 600, 800, a thousand, it doesn't take you know uh, Earl Weaver to figure out which guy you want out there. Uh, this has been an interesting session, Nick, and uh, because Ray's on vacation this week, I know you've graciously agreed to help us with the American League, so let's go over there right now, and we'll start in Los Angeles. The Angels have uh, announced that Griffin Canning, the right-handed pitcher, has a stress fracture in his lower back. He's out for the rest of the season. Jock Thompson covered this for playing time today. What's going to happen in the slot that Gr- Griffin Canning should have been in for the balance of the year? Well, we had zeroed out Canning's 2021 a couple of days uh prior with this news, but heads up for single league, uh, year league owners still holding on to him. Uh, we've made a lot of changes to the Angels playing pitching outlook for these final seven weeks. Now looks like Otani, Patrick Sandoval, Jose Suarez, Alex Cobb, and Jaime Berea with some opportunities for Dylan Bundy, Chris Rodriguez, Jose Quintana, and recent call-up Reed Detmers. Uh, keep an eye on the LA uh, team page for our latest projections. A uh, back-end guy shouldn't interest anyone. 
Rodriguez looked okay at a 3.64 ERA, but still suggests a 4.18 CRA, and he already has a 1.45 whip, which, of course, isn't going to help you much. And, of course, the Angels aren't going anywhere fast, so they may have some reason to look at guys like Detmers and uh, Chris Rodriguez and maybe less so Dylan Bundy and Jose Quintana, who have pretty much established for everybody's satisfaction that we kind of know who they are and what they are. So if you're trying to find any sort of silver lining in the dark cloud that has been the Angels pitching this year. Uh, perhaps it's the young guys. Take a look if you're in uh, fantasy, uh, uh, long-term formats, dynasty, and keeper. Uh, the Detroit Tigers had a busy day, uh, a busy week, I guess we should say. They had to put outfielder Akil Badu on the seven-day concussion list on Wednesday. Outfielder Derek Hill went on the 10-day IL because of a left rib cage contusion. I don't know if you saw this, Nick, but they crashed together in the outfield chasing a ball and they it was really a very harsh collision it looked like something you'd see in an nfl game the two of them crashed into each other and bounced backwards and one of them flew through the air it was ghastly to watch and of course uh badu's been having a pretty terrific year uh, Derek hill's been having a good year they recalled infielder Zach Short and infielder Renato Nunez had his contract selected from AAA. There's a lot of moving parts going on here. Uh, where does it all fall with the Detroit Tigers? Well, with Badu and Hill sideline, we had first expected musical chairs. Was just activated Nico Goodrum getting some reps at shortstop. Utility player Howard Castro going to a corner outfield spot. Uh, Victor Reyes in center field. But Goodrum went back on the uh, IL with a groin strain on Wednesday. So on Thursday, the Tigers played aptly named Zach Short at short. Uh, usual catcher Eric Haas in Goodrum's left field spot. Grayson Griner behind the plate. Uh, later in the game, Jacob Robson called up when Badu and Hilmer IL went into left field as a pinch hitter, and Haas went back to catching. None of the fill-ins is hugely interesting for fantasy purposes. Reyes is a speedster, 29 stolen bases, 83% stolen base success rate, 850 career appearances. He was okay in 2019-2020, but it combined uh, 293 and 500, 293 and 505 plate appearances with 17 home runs, 17 bags. Again, this season in a fourth outfield role, shuttling between Detroit and AAA. AAA was hitting 385 with a 1026 OPS, five stolen bases, and 91 plate appearances. But in the majors, hitting 208, 34 strikeouts, just four walks, three stolen bases, and 130 plate appearances. Harold Castro's high line drive rate has driven an elevated hit rate, lifting him to a 280 plus batting average. But XBA and contract rate, walk rate are very cautionary. Short has never been a very productive offensive player. Had an 1,100 OPS and a brief minor league stop in rookie ball, but that was a demotion from double-A the previous year. Also had an 871 OPS and 128 plate appearances in triple-A this season. In the major since his call-up this season, he's hitting just a buck 40, uh, 550 OPS, 240 plate appearances, but does have five home runs. 16% hit rate could augur for a higher batting average. It's kind of a shame, isn't it, too? Detroit was really playing well since the All-Star break. I think they were a few games above 500, and 
uh, more than a few games above 500 and creeping up to the 500 mark for the year. And people were getting interested in, in how Detroit was doing, and Badu is a big part of that story. And now I guess we'll have to see how quickly he can recover from the concussion. And the problem with concussions when we try to figure this kind of stuff out, Nick, is one concussion is not the same as the next. There's a great, great spectrum of severity when you talk about concussions and a great range of, uh, of effects. Yeah, there certainly is. And, and guys can be out. I mean, a concussion can keep a guy out for 10 days. It can't keep him out for two months. So it's one of those things where it's very hard to predict how long someone's going to be out uh, when the concussion uh, uh, rears its ugly head. The White Sox put left-hander Carlos Rodon on the 10-day injured list with left shoulder fatigue, they're calling it. They recalled right-hander Matt Foster from AAA. Rick Green is on the story for playing time today. Gosh, Rodon's having a terrific year, so what are the rotation ramifications with this story? Yeah, Rodon was actually having a monster year, nearly $30 in 5 by 5 value in uh, baseball tables. He had shoulder surgery in 2017, missed most of the pandemic-shortened 2020 season with more shoulder issues. Uh, Manager Tony Lucia expects Rodon to be out longer than a minimum set on the IL. Uh, no other information uh, right now on that. One option is Renato Lopez, uh, while Jimmy Lambert is another. Call up Matt Foster will get mop up in other low leverage situations that shouldn't affect fantasy rosters. We'll just more playing time percentages for Rodon and replacements as information becomes available. But this is certainly a blow for especially for Rodon's uh, fantasy owners. And I guess we'll have more information as it comes available, but uh, the idea of Rodon and Shoulder can't inspire any optimism in any of his fantasy managers or the club or their fans. Uh, Tampa Bay put left-hander Ryan Yarbrough on the COVID IL on Tuesday. Chris Olson covers the Rays for playing time today. What will the always resourceful Tampa Rays do to respond to this? Well, if Yarbrough is suddenly unavailable, Josh Fleming was pressed into service a day early on August 10th, and things did not go well. Yielded 10 earned runs over 3.1 innings pitch in the game against the Red Sox. Uh, Drew Rasmussen uh, worked as an opener for Tampa on Thursday, and he did well. Four innings pitch, one hit, two walks, one earned run, four strikeouts. This might be the only stopgap measure Tampa will need to deploy. It's not immediately clear whether Garborough tested positive himself or whether he was a close contact of someone who tested positive or whether he was experiencing any symptoms. Any prolonged absence by Yarborough is sure to drumbeats to promote Olympian Shane Boz to Tampa, though it does not sound like any such promotion is imminent. I think it's important to note for people who may not understand the full meaning of a COVID-19 IL stint for a major league player. It doesn't mean that there's a positive test. It can mean that, but it, uh, there's an awful lot of contact tracing going on in major league baseball and the players are sometimes put on the IL just because of that. So it may be that Riarboro's back in action tomorrow, for all we know, as happened with, uh, I think, J.D. Martinez went on and off the IL for the COVID IL last week, basically the same day. They put him on and took him off. Just in time, I might add, for me to miss a uh, four-for-five day with five RBIs or something. So uh, my good luck continues in regard to uh, the whole COVID situation. There's another list in Major League Baseball called the bereavement list. Uh, Boston put Christian Vasquez on the bereavement list and recalled catcher Connor Wong from AAA. Is this a big deal? Not a big deal. Just a heads up for those with weekly or bi-weekly transactions. It sounds like Vasquez could be out through the weekend. A regular backup, uh, Kevin Pawicki, will probably pick up the majority of starts in his absence, but Wong might get into a game. Pawicki has been swinging a hot bat of late. 
while Vasquez had been struggling, particularly in the power department with his last home run coming on June 27th. Uh, Vasquez had 23 home runs in 2019, left the yard in a similar place in shortened 2020 season, seven homers, 173 at bats. But been sitting on four home runs in 2021 for a while, with even double digits looking like a stretch. Pure speculation, but perhaps whatever prompted his bereavement leave has been weighing on him, and maybe he'll be able to pick up his pace if he returns from the leave more at peace. Finally, Nick, uh, Ray and I have been joking for weeks that we should have a regular slot for Edward Olivares's promotions and demotions, and we actually thought that might be over when he was called up after Kansas City's deadline deals, but nope, Kansas City optioned Olivares back to AAA on Tuesday. What now? Uh, so yeah, stop us if you heard this before. This was a late transaction coming in, but we'd already reconfigured Kansas City's uh, playing time projections to reflect the fact that the Royals aren't all that interested giving Oliveri as much of a late-season opportunity. Hunter Dozier, uh, 201-259-359. He's been in 29 at-bats, now getting regular at-bats right field again as Kansas City gives rookie Emmanuel Rivera, who's 7 for 26, no homers, 174 card contact, expected hard contact index, regular at-bats at third base. Uh, check the uh, Kansas City team page for projection and position updates. And once again, I did that, and uh, you look at Oliveras and you think, gosh, why isn't he playing more? He actually hasn't done a whole lot to deserve to play more, frankly. Uh, a 739 OPS isn't nothing, but it's uh, it's better than Michael Taylor, who seems to be playing. It's, uh, it's actually better than Hunter Dozier, so it's really mystifying to a certain extent why Edward Oliveras isn't getting the playing time that it looks like he deserves. Maybe he's just not popular there. I don't know. It's, it may have something to do with just roster manipulation. Maybe they, they know what they have or think they know what they have with Edward Olivares and want to see what they've got with some of these other young guys, as you mentioned. But I got to admit, I don't get it. Yeah, I know. It's one of those things that's hard to know why, why they're making the decisions they're making. Maybe it has uh, defensive implications, just uh, hard for us to know exactly what's going on. I don't know this for a fact, but I thought Olivares was considered a decent fielder. Yeah, as far as I know, he, he was. So I just don't know what's going on. He seems to be the guy that's on the bubble, uh, no matter what's going on in Kansas City. And maybe that's just that they, they've got this idea that they can bounce him around for a while and uh, not, not uh, be any worse for wear. I read a joke somewhere online, Nick, that somebody said the reason that, that Oliveris is always the odd man out is that the, the Royals bought him a round-trip season pass from Kansas City to Omaha, but only he can use it, and they don't want to spend the 90 bucks to send anybody else back and forth. That may be, may be true. Who knows? <laughs> All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with both leagues this week, and we'll talk to you again with the National League next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League, sometimes both leagues, for us here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, and the TGFBI Podcast, among other places. He'll be coming to the plate for his second turn next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of what's coming up on the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. That'll be next Friday, another full edition featuring an expert interview with Matt Dodge, a team roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Plus, we'll have all the other usual great stuff. Check us out again next Friday with Matt Dodge from Baseball HQ on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the great fantasy baseball invitational podcast. Justin, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast so far. Looking forward to talking some more. On the Rotographs Fantasy Baseball Podcast, it used to be called The Sleeper and the Bust, but I noticed that on my pod getter anyway, it's now got that much stodgier title. Uh, but it's a terrific podcast, and you appear regularly on it with Paul Sporer, who was our guest here on Baseball HQ Radio last week. And one of the things you guys talked about was Clayton Kershaw's sort of on-again, off-again return from his injury, his return now stretched out. I don't think he's going to be back till September, they say partly because they want to keep him ready to go for October, I suspect. The key question here, though, is what do we expect from Kershaw in September when he could possibly still help fantasy teams, but he could also be throwing four innings a game and not helping fantasy teams very much at all? What are your plans and expectations when you look at a situation like Clayton Kershaw's? It's a really tough question because, I mean, I've got Kershaw as my number two starting pitcher on both of my main event teams. Like, I need him. Like, I need him right now, and he's not uh, pitching for me. Um, and I, I think the Dodgers will want to make sure his inning numbers are, you know, good enough going into the playoffs that he can go six in, in October. Um, but they're also not going to push it with him because they, they want to make sure that he's healthy. They want to make sure that he has enough juice left in the arm uh, for those playoff spots. And I think we're going to see this with a lot of guys, right, who – teams are, are looking ahead, looking to October, um, where they start getting starts limited, starts skip. We're seeing it with the Brewers, who have a big lead in the Central, right? They they, they pulled uh, Brandon Woodruff out of the, uh, the uh, or off the mound quickly in his last start. You know, um, he wasn't feeling well. They're like, hey, well, we'll just limit your innings. They're going to, they did it with Frank Peralta earlier, uh, you know, in the second half. Um, so I, I think this is going to be kind of a, uh, a frustrating moment for fantasy managers to kind of figure out, oh God, who are going to be these guys who teams are going to want to save for the postseason, or teams that are out of it go, you know, why are we adding all these innings on to a guy when uh, our season isn't ending up in the postseason? Let's save him for next year. Uh, so I think it's going to be really frustrating. I think that people are really going to want to target maybe a lot of middle reliever long men sneaky wins down the stretch but it's going to be really really hard to pinpoint which teams are going to do it with which players and there are going to be some teams that just let guys go and I, I think it's going to be a crapshoot well just letting guys go is a topic that came up when you and Paul were talking about this especially how the depth of the league 12 team versus 10 team versus 15 really ha- forces you to calibrate a lot of things differently depending on size of league as to whether or not you'd even want to keep Kershaw given the uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, if you're in a 10 team league, especially if you're like in a head to head league and you're like going for a playoff spot right now and you need these last couple weeks of August, like can you afford to be holding him on your bench uh, or on the IL if your IL is already full? Because on top of all these innings issues with, you know, pitchers who are being saved for the postseason or might be shut down early or limited down the stretch, kind of keep their innings uh, levels at a, you know, more respectful rate after the short season, you know, uh, we also have, you know, a lot of issues of, um, you know, guys don't, you 
you know, guys who are on the IL already. Like this has been just an obscene year for injuries, right? And so like guys with real injuries that are really hurt, you know, that you're trying to hold on to, like how do you, you know, learning how to balance or figuring out how you're going to balance, you know, the Clayton Kershaws versus, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example that's not a picture of guys that are on the IL right now. But, you know, most people's ILs are full. And so especially in your shallower formats, if you're playing in 10-team, 12-team leagues, I think you have to be really brutal and go and really kind of examine, like, can I afford to wait these two weeks for guys like Kershaw or a guy like uh, Jacob deGrom? We should get some more information here pretty quick on his uh, on his return and whether it's going to happen uh, soon or not. But, um, you know, we're going to have to make tough decisions. Uh, and if you're in the middle of the pack fighting to get to the top of the pack, you may actually end up benefiting some of these, uh, you know, healthier teams in your leagues that are at the top that can afford to stash when, when we, you know, other us other us can't. Um, and it's, it's going to be frustrating and it's, uh, there's, you know, unfortunately there's no science behind this, right? There's no way to say, well, Glaber Torres is a guy you should hold on to. Whereas Kershaw is a guy you should get rid of because we have no idea who's going to bounce back quicker. Who's going to be good when they come back. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's going to be a little bit of a guessing game and hope you get the right start thrown at the right time. I think something you said a moment ago is really important, and that is you have to understand the team context. What is the team's history of handling these kinds of situations? Because they, they do handle them differently. Tampa particularly is quite uh, unusual about how it works its pitchers in and out of the lineup, in and out of the roster. Uh, the Dodgers have been somewhat similar but some of the teams are more old-fashioned and just throw them out there every five days and if they get hurt spin on it rub a little dirt on it, and let them go so how do you think an injury like this or an injury issue like this should affect our expectations of an older pitcher like Clayton Kershaw when it comes to making decisions about keeper status in dynasty or keeper leagues oh that's a really good question um I think that I, I think 2021 is going to be a little bit of a unicorn year in, in the same way that 2020 was in which like, because we, we ramped up from 60 games to 162 games and we had never seen that before. I think this is not going to necessarily carry over into future seasons as much. Some of it will some, I mean, some of this will inspire teams to look at more six minor rotations, look at, Hey, can we shut down guys? You know, um, have Phantom IL since midseason to kind of keep guys fresh. But I think your horses, for the most part, are still going to be your horses. Um, and you know, maybe a guy like Kershaw is a little bit more limited than an, a normal ace, just because of the plethora of injuries he's had over the course of his career. But I think next year, if you're looking at keepers for next year or in dynasty. I don't think this is going to be as big of an issue. I definitely think there will be some remnants of it, but I don't think this is going to be a long-term, like, oh, from now on, every team is going to, like, look to limit guys uh, more and more and more. Um, I, I think they teams still want the traditional 200-inning guy. There's going to be fewer of them. And some teams, like you said, with Tampa, Tampa's a great example of an organization that they're like, we're not going to do anything like we used to. Like, we don't care about tradition. We're going to do what we think it takes to win. So they're going to be di a little bit different. But for the most of the league, I think, are going to go back and revert back to kind of your traditional way of doing things. 
How does the team context and this whole uh, situation with Kershaw in particular, but also guys like him in general, even Mike Trout next year, how do we look at it, guys like these next year in redraft leagues when we don't have to worry about keeper status or anything like that? I've heard people talking on podcasts that Mike Trout could fall into the third round, that Clayton Kershaw, who is third, fourth round this year, could be sixth, seventh next year because this kind of situation just generates doubt. And doubt is the one thing you don't want to be dealing with when you're talking about the top of your draft. Yeah, I can't imagine Trout falls into the third round next year, but um, I can see the argument people are going to make for it because he hasn't been the healthy stalwart that he was earlier in his career. I just think the talent is too good to push that far. And I think there's always going to be at least one person that goes, Mike Trout in the second round? You've got to be kidding me. There's no way I can pass him up. Um, whether that is right, wrong, or indifferent in terms of the outcome of where he should be going, um, I think those guys kind of uh, you know, bring the name value uh, that people aren't willing to get away from. And that may end up turning out to be a mistake, maybe. Because, you know, obviously, in order to win, like, the most important things is innings pitch and, and at-bats or plate appearances um, in order to win, you know, these kind of leagues. So uh, Kershaw, I think, is one I could see slip a little bit. And I think people may start to reevaluate, hey, you know, yes, he's still an elite pitcher when he's on the mound, but he's just not on the mound quite as much as he has been in previous seasons. Um, I think it's going to offer some really interesting debates coming into 2022 of who are good values and who are not. I think, uh, you know, Alberto Mondesi is another guy. You're going to see a, a wide range of outcomes in terms of ADP next season because there are going to be some people who want to take him in the first and second round still because of his just game-changing ability. And then other people are going to say, you can't take this guy in the top five or six rounds because he just can't stay on the field. Uh, and so I think you're really going to see a kind of a split in the industry on, on where these guys should go. Um, and, I mean, I'm already in a draft so like, for, for 2022, uh, so I've already kind of seen a little bit of this, uh, seeing kind of where guys go. Um, and it, it's, it's really interesting, and I'm really excited for some of the early drafts in October that I do uh, to kind of see how things pan out. You and Paul agreed, uh, let's go from an established veteran kind of situation to a rising uh, rising star or perhaps a rising bust. You guys talked about Joe Adele, and uh, the question that you asked yourselves and that I would have been asking had I been uh, talking in that conversation is, this strikeout rate has got to be a concern. And you guys said that if he can cut his rate from, I think his major league historical rates around 40%. If he can get it down to 25%, then we're all going to be interested. But then the question becomes, how likely is he to be able to make such a huge cut in his strikeout rate, considering his 30% rate in the minors, his 30% rate plus in the in the major leagues in his limited exposure, and his rest of season projections, which are mid-30s to kind of a high of 36% of baseball HQ's projection. How how confident can anybody be that Joe Adele is going to make this one really important change in his in his player profile? Oh, I mean, I don't know how confident you can be. Um, I mean, I think it, I think the most difficult thing for a player to do in baseball is make more contact, right? I think the most difficult thing to do in sports in general is to hit a baseball. 
Um, and so, like, I, I think often we go, well, if this guy could, you know, just make more contact, if he could just stop striking out so much, as if that's an easy thing to do, I think sometimes it's a little bit ludicrous. And, and obviously it's, it's us as analysts, you know, working with our minds going, I can see the problem, just fix the problem. And the person who's actually swinging the bat going, it's not that easy to fix this problem. You come and try to do it. Uh, so I, I think it's sometimes a bit unfair when we say things like that because it's it's not an easy fix, and it's also a reminder, of, you know, to the audience and to ourselves a little bit that you know that that isn't something that's easily fixed. Like there's been plenty of guys with amazing talent, um, you know, physical gifts that have not been able to figure it out. You know, Carlos Gomez was one of those guys, like where like if he could just make more contact, he would be a perennial first round pick. And, you know, he had a few seasons in which he could do just enough to do it. And then he fell off the map. Right. And I, I love Adele's talents. I think he has amazing uh, physical gifts, but I don't know that he's going to be able to figure it out so far. So good. I mean, his own contact percentage, 86%. I'll take that. Like his O swing is still above 30%. I don't love that, but the swing and strike rate, Nine percent. I'll take that from a Joe Adele. Uh, like uh, he has all the gifts to put it together, but I think it's a lot riskier uh, than maybe we we give it credit sometimes that he can. In St. Louis, analysts have been waiting all season for Alex Reyes to implode based on his skills, and it finally happened. Had an ERA around five for the July period. He gave up three runs with no outs. At uh, one point, uh, what's your take on Reyes, and uh, how does it affect uh, Giovanni Gallegos? Oh, man, I, I think Reyes is one of those guys that, like, uh, if he does not figure out to stop putting men on base via the free pass, the problems were going to have to happen eventually. Um, and I think Gallegos is, is easily the next man up uh, if they do decide to make a move. The question is, the Cardinals, in the situation that they're in, in the division, uh, and in you know in the wild card race, uh, is it going? Is it does it make sense for them to even make a move? Like they may just say, you know, we're not making the playoffs this year. We're going to keep letting the young guy do this uh, to give him confidence going into next year because he's a huge part of the future. So just because he's struggling doesn't mean they're going to make the move to replace him. If they do, I think Gallegos is the next guy. Like I think he is. He's shown that he can be a closer at the major league level. He's been really, really good this season. Um, but uh, I don't, I, I would say I, I don't feel extremely confident the Cardinals will necessarily make that. One other reason that you should pick up Gallegos is I dropped him in TGFBI oh, a couple, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. I had to do it. There was no other choice. So what do you think's going on in the Minnesota bullpen? Speaking of bullpens. Uh, I mean, it seems like Calme is kind of, uh, establishing himself as as the guy right i mean uh i really thought it was going to be tyler duffy the column has just been so brutal but never underestimate how much a contract means and minnesota paid money for holiday and they i think they want to try to recoup some of that value so that maybe they could try to trade him in the off season um and so they're giving him the chance and i think this uh, is one of those situations where they have a goal, and their goal is probably to flip Colome. Um, and the only way they can kind of rebuild that value, where they can trade that, you know, trade that contract, trade that spot, is by letting him close and hoping that a team 
in the offseason goes, hey, I don't want to pay for a guy like Craig Kimbrell or a guy like Rossi Iglesias. Uh, you know, give me the proven guy who had a rough stretch at the beginning of 2021, but got it together at the end and was closing for the Twins um, for a much cheaper price. So uh, I, I think, yeah, Colomay's probably guy rest of the way. Yeah, I picked them all up. I had, I've got Duffy and I've got Colomay and I've got uh, everybody who's nailed down in that bullpen. And, of course, they don't win enough games to make it really worthwhile. But they're not bad pitchers. I guess that doesn't help. And finally, Justin, you mentioned on the Sleep from the Bust podcast and here that you're in a three-sport draft. How does that work? So it is uh, – we, we draft baseball, football, and basketball. Uh, we start the draft right now because football is about to start. Baseball is the last sport, so we're drafting for next season's baseball right now. We're currently about 33 rounds into this 55-round uh, draft. Um, or let's see, I, I've got it up actually right here. We are 35 rounds into the 55-round draft. Um, you can take any player at any time, right? So, like, uh, for instance, like the first three picks of the draft, uh, uh, the guy who had the first pick, he took Shohei Otani, the first overall. Now, I had the second pick. I took uh, Nikola Jokic. Um, the basketball player, uh, and then the third guy picked Christian McCaffrey, a football player. And so, like, you're building your team, your your team, your collection of teams, your three teams uh, from the three sports in any order that you want. And so, I mean, while obviously you want to put together your best talented team, um, a lot of it really comes down to the strategy of roster construction and roster construction among three sports because the way the point system works, um, you can't just punt a sport. If you finish last in a sport, you're not going to win the overall. Um, and so uh, it, it's really important to do well enough in every sport and then excel in a few sports uh, to, to end up to try to win the overall. And um, it's a really, really fun draft. It's probably the funnest snake draft I've ever been a part of just because of how crazy uh, the valuations are. You know, everybody valuates everything different in each individual sport, but then trying to compare like how much is Trey Turner worth versus uh, Allen Robinson or Tobias Harris, or, you know, I mean uh, like, you know, how much is baseball worth because it's the last sport as opposed to football, which is the first sport because uh, you can trade between sports as well in season. Um, so it's a, uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, thought experiment. I've been playing in it off and on for eight years. Uh took a couple of years off in the middle and got back into it again last year during the pandemic. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, been, been a ton of fun. Really, really enjoy it. Uh, and like I said, it's my favorite snake draft to participate in. I'm in a redraft version and a dynasty version, the dynasty version. I'm going to win the first season of it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited after winning football earlier, I'm going to win baseball and I should, should, that should carry me to an overall title. So you mentioned the scoring. Does it work? You, you, you draft the, the teams all at the same time, but the leagues are played out football separate from basketball, separate from baseball. And then are you playing those individual leagues as rotisserie style category based? And then just amassing the total points you make on all three leagues as into some kind of grand final total that determines the overall winner. So basketball and baseball are done roto. So just your traditional roto league, right? Um, football you can't really do roto well in football. It's I, I've tried a roto football league. It is it is mind-bogglingly painful uh, to try to to try to do one of those. 
And so we actually do, it's head-to-head, but it's head-to-head all play. You play all teams every week, and then you're given a rank based on where you, you know, finish uh, against all the other teams that week. And so wherever you finish in the final standings of each sport, you get a point total. So, uh, you know, for instance, if you win a sport or you win the overall sport, I won baseball and football in the dynasty version, I got 32 points. Well, if you finish less, you get negative like 26 points. So like, and, and, you know, the point totals go kind of up and down depending on where you finish in the standings. Uh, And so then you get the total cumulative points of all three where you were in the standings in all three. And that kind of determines who the overall winner is. Do you get something for winning an individual league or is it entirely focused on the, uh, on the overall? Uh, Originally when we started this, uh, we started the league, um, you would get your money back. So if it was a hundred dollar buy-in, um, which I think it was when we first started, uh, you would get a hundred bucks if you won an individual sport, right? Um, but that has changed over the years because what would happen was people would just punt their worst sport. If, if for me, it was basketball. I was awful at basketball. And so what I would do was I would, I wouldn't even draft a basketball player until like round 20. Um, I would just load up on baseball and football, attempt to win those two sports, and then hope to do just well enough in basketball that I could, you know, have those other two sports carry me to an overall title. But at least I was at least if I got one of those sports, baseball or football one, I was getting my money back, right? With the potential of, you know, a lot more profit. And so the commissioner said, no, no, this this, this league is supposed to show how good you are at all three. Let's take away the individual win and say everything goes into the overall. And so everything now is part of the overall, so you can't hunt a sport anymore. And you mentioned the difficulty or the challenge, I guess a better way to put it, of figuring out your uh, your roster construction strategy. What was yours going into this draft? Uh, mine was my, my worst sport was basketball, and my best sport is baseball, obviously, uh, being a baseball analyst. Um, and so my plan coming into this draft was I'm really going to load up in ba- on basketball on really elite players uh, to the best of my ability and really kind of punt baseball. I didn't take a baseball player, I think, for the first 10 rounds because I felt like, hey, you know, even if I don't have a very, you know, quote unquote, good baseball team coming out of it, I can probably outplay people um, in a way that I can't do in football or in uh, in basketball for sure. Uh, and so that that's been kind of my strategy. I've adjusted it as I've kind of gone on a little bit and taken a, you know, maybe a little bit a less aggressive approach at football than I, I am at basketball. I'm really, I really loaded up on basketball and I'm kind of evenly kind of, uh, you know, filling my teams in on baseball and football as the draft kind of gets into the later rounds. Uh, just because football, there's so much luck involved with the injuries that we see uh, and how quickly players emerge or become irrelevant. Uh, and I, I just didn't want to invest a ton of really high draft capital into a fo- football players as much as basketball and baseball, which are a little bit more stable sports. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Justin Mason from Fangraphs Rotographs, Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Justin, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. These are players that meet for various criteria for you. Let's start with a slump. That's a player who's struggling this season, but worth hanging on to. 
you know, I've gone back and forth on this one, um, but I, I think it's Cody Bellinger. And I, like, Paul and I had a discussion, I think, just last week in which he was trying to talk me into, like, we should be dropping him for Brandon Bell uh, or for other guys, like, you know, in that ilk. Uh, I just can't do it. Like, you know, he then went on, like, a tear where he, I think, had four home runs or something like that in the week. And I just, I, I just can't let go. Like, the talent is too good. Um, and it looks like he's starting to close some of those holes that kind of came out into a swing last season uh, and it kind of carried over with the shoulder issues this year. But it looks like things are starting to come around for him. I know that they're platooning him more, putting him at the bottom of the, the order. I just I just can't dump him. I just can't, you know, I, I just I just can't quit the guy. He's just too talented uh, of a player and, a, you know, a previous first-round, you know, uh, producer that I, I, it's probably the wrong decision, but I'm just not willing to do it yet. How about a pump? That's a player who's overachieving this year, but worth selling high. Well, right now there's a player who is overperforming in just like this short spurt, and that's Lewis Brinson. Brinson, the guys I've liked in the past, he is on fire right now. Three home runs in his last two games, hit the ball hard. We know he's got speed. We know he has the ability to walk, but man, all the underlying metrics show that he's just going to turn right back into the pumpkin that he is. And so I think people are starting to pick him up. Um, and I think that is going to turn out to be a huge mistake uh, if you're hoping that a guy like Lewis Brinson can kind of turn it back around. So don't fall for that same trap. Don't be Charlie Brown falling on your butt again. Uh, stay away from Lewis Brinson. And how about a dump? That's an underachiever who's worth replacing. The jig is up. Uh, you know what? I think it's Eugenio Suarez. Uh, I mean, this was, and this is a guy that I really bought into. He was at a discounted rate this year. Uh, I really thought he was going to like come back and I know he's hit for a lot of power, continues to hit for power, but with Mike Moustakis back, I think he's going to hit the bench quite a lot more. He's still striking out at obscene rates. You know, the average, you know, we talked, you know, we talked about it earlier, like, you know, the ERA and whip can still fluctuate quite a bit right now. So can batting average. Um, and you don't need him pulling down your batting average, especially if you're, you know, in your league uh, in that category, if you're clumped together with other teams. Like, I think it's time to drop Eugenio Suarez in a lot of formats. I have a Eugenio Suarez in the Raz Slam draft. And, it, of course, it has been disappointing, but it's kind of weird that in 2019, you know, he had very similar-looking metrics, a 28.5% strikeout versus 30% this year. Not that big of a difference, 10% walk rate versus 9, you know, those kinds of things. But but you look at his batting average, and it's uh, like 100 points lower this year than it was that year, and uh, it's really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I think this is uh, maybe kind of a um, a lesson that a lot of us are learning that, you know, um, that just because we a guy has been able to kind of outperform his metrics in the past doesn't mean he's going to be able to recover that once he loses it. I mean, uh, you know, there were red flags with Suarez uh, in 2019. We looked past him in 2020. We shouldn't have looked past him in 2021 considering how poorly he performed in 2020. Like, I get, you know, falling for it in 2020 and, and eating it. That happened, right? That's going to happen. But to fall for it again, like a lot of us did, myself included, um, is, is, is a mistake uh, in the process. Uh, you know, we, we use these underlying metrics to identify when players are going to break out 
or when players are going to drop off. And then we don't believe the work we've put into it. And I think that, and I think that's part of our own personal biases that we like certain players or that we think certain players could be really huge values for us. Um, and sometimes that, uh, you know, we should be taking those values in the 15th, 16th round, not in the sixth or seventh round. I look and I see a 312 BABIP in 2019, 198 this year, and I wonder if, uh, and I haven't looked into this, but I wonder if the shift has been causing him any kind of trouble uh, or whether it's just the fact that his line drive percentage is well off. I don't know. Uh, how about a jump hitter? This is a guy you're going to jump on if you see him in your waiver wire. Anthony Santander. Uh, I mean, he's a guy that uh, I struggled with injuries uh, this year. Uh, he's never really been able to kind of get off uh, off the ground, but recently he's hitting the ball really hard, hitting home runs now, uh, you know, plays in a good park. He's going to be playing every day uh, for the Orioles. And I, you know, he's, he's still available in about 50% of shallower format leagues. Um, so I, if he's available in your league, I think he's the guy that I would really run to go out and grab. And finally, how about a jump pitcher you'd grab if you could? Uh, Marco Gonzalez came out yesterday. I talked about him earlier. He, Came out uh, yesterday through a, a complete game. Um, only gave up one run in that outing, uh, and uh, he's still available in like fifty percent of CBS leagues. That's insanely low. He's been really, really good since the All Star break. Um, really kind of fleshed uh, out some mechanical issues and, and has been fantastic. Uh, and the strikeouts aren't going to be great, but he's a kind of guy that could protect the ratios and allow you to go after the big strikeout guys that might be a little bit more volatile. I've always liked Marco Gonzalez for some reason. He just seems like, like a plugger, and sometimes you got to have a plugger on your team. Uh, Justin Mason slumped Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers, his pump, Lewis Brinson of Miami, a dump, Eugenio Suarez of Cincinnati, a jump hitter, Anthony Santander of Baltimore, and finally a jump pitcher, Marco Gonzalez of Seattle. Justin, remind us where listeners can keep up with you. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Mason FWFB, uh, right over on Fangraphs, usually four to five times a week. Uh, you can hear me on the Sleeper and the Bus podcast, the Friends of Days and Benefits uh, baseball podcast, uh, and the TGFBI podcast as well. Well, I was hoping this would be as much fun as it was last time. It's probably even been more fun for me, I hope, for you as well. And are you going to be in uh, Arizona in the fall? I am, me and the wife. Danielle's oh, coming out with me. Uh, we've already booked our hotel, booked our tickets. Uh, it's her birthday weekend, so oh, good. I think we're going to throw a little shindig while we're there uh, for her birthday. And um, I'm super, super excited. I, I missed not going last year. And uh, if you've ever thought about going out to Arizona for Arizona Fall League, I think this is going to be the year. There's going to be a lot of people going out. and It's going to be a, a really, really fun and informative time. Thanks very much for doing this, Justin. It's been a treat. Absolutely. Anytime. I love coming on. Justin Mason joins us from Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the TGFBI podcast, and more. Quick break here. We'll be back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But first, let me remind you about First Pitch Arizona to remind you how you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a ton of fun doing it. Yes, it is First Pitch Arizona, the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway. We're live and in person October 14th through 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West. 
just walking distance from beautiful Sloan Park. First Pitch Arizona runs three full days and packed with activities like fantasy workshops, drafts and contests, seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics and strategy, my favorite hanging around the old fire pit and talking baseball with some of the best in the business, and of course going to the Arizona Fall League ball games, featuring some of the best and brightest rising stars from the minor leagues, all from the best seat in the stadium, and you get to decide what seat that is. Tickets to games every day are just the beginning of your registration package. You'll also get free copies of Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster, Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, both hot off the presses as soon as they're printed. There's a Thursday evening welcome reception where you can hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's food, a free Saturday lunch event, and free hot buffet breakfasts for guests at the host's hotel and all kinds of handouts, instant freebies, and prizes, not to mention as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. The First Pitch Arizona webpage is up. You can get all the latest skinny on First Pitch Arizona 2021, including event schedules, registration information and discounts, and hotel information and discounts. Just go to BaseballHQ.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona, or just go to the BaseballHQ.com homepage. There's a big orange logo over there on the right-hand side. Click on that and you'll get all the info. Previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We call it First Pitch Arizona. And we'll see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My Extra Innings comment is coming up and leading off. It's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth considering for a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Kansas City catcher MJ Melendez is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His plus power is real and verified in batting practice, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst. In fact, going back, way, way back, perhaps there's a theme there, to Chris Blessing's Miners column on June 21st, 2018. Yes, 2018 on BaseballHQ.com. Chris said that I see a 25-30 to 30 home run bat at maturity. Well, on that basis, perhaps 22 is the age of maturity for 22-year-old Kansas City Royals power-hitting catcher, MJ Melendez, who has already belted 29 home runs in 2021, meeting Chris Blessing's 2018 prediction. Way to go, Chris! Worth noting, Melendez was promoted to AAA Omaha on August 9, 2021, where Werner Park is only about 193 miles away from Kansas City's Kauffman Stadium, down I-29. In other words, perhaps he's not far away geographically or professionally. Could a September call-up for this former second-rounder in 2017 be on the horizon? Maybe. Then again, as of Friday the 13th, August 13th, 2021, that is, Melendez has only played in two AAA games, suggesting that more experience is needed. That's why 22-year-old Kansas City Royals power-hitting catcher, MJ Melendez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in Dynasty Leagues. Even so, Melendez turned on a 3-0 offering from Iowa Cubs starter Corey Abbott in the fourth inning of his AAA debut at Warner Park in Omaha on Wednesday, August 11th 
for a two-run opposite field home run to left. Did you catch that? No, not the ball. A two-run opposite field home run to left means that Melendez bats left-handed as a catcher, potentially making him a nice compliment to right-handed Salvador Perez behind the plate, who also has 29 home runs in 2021. Imagine that, two catchers, both with 30-plus home run power potential, batting from either side of the plate in Kansas City. Wow, fountains and fireworks. Digging deeper is something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Melendez has improved his patience at the plate in 2021 by improving his walk rate from 10% in 2019 to 12% in 2021. Melendez has also seen more pitches in 2021, improving to 4.25 pitches per plate appearance in 2021 on average. So maybe it makes complete sense to add above-average power-hitting Kansas City Royals catcher MJ Melendez. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the great gift of Miguel Cabrera. On Wednesday night, my wife Lisa and I were watching a Jays game, and in between innings, like I usually do, I flipped around catching up on the other games, and I happened to land upon the Detroit-Baltimore game. They were in the fifth inning of a scoreless tie, and Miggy Cabrera was up. Now, I'm a huge Miggy fan. I always have been. At First Pitch Arizona a few years ago, there was a silent auction for signed baseball memorabilia, and I picked up a signed Miggy jersey, which I wore to Tout Wars and nowhere else for the next few years until the autograph started to fade off the number on the back. I started getting Miggy on fantasy rosters years ago, when I was still playing in my AL-only 4x4 home league. I've had him on rosters pretty much someplace the last four or five years as well, and I have him on my Tout Wars American League only this year, and that's why I stopped to tune in and watch. Anyway, Miggy was facing Matt Harvey, and you probably know that on a 2-2 pitch, he hit one of those flyball line-drive fliners, they call them, to left center, cleared the fence by a foot or two, and Miguel Cabrera had 499 taters for his career. He's got one more to go, and it's a great accomplishment, but not much about it stands out among the small fraternity of post-1975 players with 500 or more homers. Among hitters, and remember these are guys whose careers started in 1975 or later, just 13 have 500 or more home runs, led, of course, by Barry Bonds at 752. When Miggy hits his fateful tater sometimes in the next few games, he will become just the 14th in that time span and the 28th in all of baseball history. Some of the hitters on the list got there by extraordinary skill. Mark McGuire got his 583 homers in just 7,660 plate appearances, while Miggy will get his somewhere around his 9,500th. Nor is Miggy's 500 homers going to be just pure dogged determination. Miggy's 9,500 plate appearances will be well behind Eddie Murray, who took 11,336, and Eddie ended up with just 504, a total Miggy could easily pass this season. Among the group, Miggy's a little above median in OBP, a little below the median in slugging, more or less at the median in OPS. He's sort of lower middle of the pack in strikeout rate, walk rate, and eye ratio. Interesting fact, by the way, after Thursday night's game, Albert Pujols has 1,342 strikeouts and 1,342 walks. 
Rafael Palmero, 13.48 strikeouts, 13.53 walks, a difference of five. And how about Barry Bonds, 1,539 strikeouts, 2,558 walks. You could look it up. Miggy's one standout stat might be his batting average. His 311 is behind only Manny Ramirez's 312 among the 500-plus post-1975 crew. As he ran the bases after hitting number 499, Miggy had this big, goofy grin on his face, and I think that's what I always like most about him. Like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he just always seems to be having a lot of fun when he plays baseball. They say professional baseball is grown men playing a little boy's game, and it looks to me like Miggy has a lot of little boy left in him. Detroit left Cabrera out of the lineup on Thursday so he could start taking his run on Friday evening in Detroit. I'll be watching. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 39 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Justin Mason, from Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the TGFBI podcast, and more. Justin is one of the brightest, most active people in the fantasy content business, and always a pleasure to talk with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Harold Nichols, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go where you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. Those stars really help us find new listeners, and new listeners keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday Full Edition, our expert interview with Matt Dodge, team roster analyst at BaseballHQ.com, plus all the other usual great stuff. That's Matt Dodge, BaseballHQ.com, coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.